Father in heaven, I ask as we speak this evening that you would highlight those points of history that are most significant for us as a people. I thank you, and I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. To begin with tonight, I'd like to offer you extra credit in this class if you need or want extra credit. At audioverse.org, you can find two sermons by Dave Fiedler on the history of Minneapolis, 1888. And I have them on my computer if you just want to take them with your uh, little flash drive. Um, If you will listen to them and let me know you did... Together, they'll be worth as much credit as one of your hand-in... What do you call those things? Those Adventist history things. And you'll you'll find them fascinating. I was listening to one of them in the office, and there's a siren in the background of one of them, and it made Mrs. Clark get up to go see what was going wrong. (laughs) It did. All right, so our topic today is about the history of 1888 in Minneapolis, one of the most interesting things that went on in the history of Adventism, and the repercussions from what happened in 1888 still are big all over the place. In fact, there will be another lecture following through on this topic later in the semester. Let me get started. So, biographical background about... Jones and Wagner, I'll make it brief. You might have noticed that, did uh, Jones grow up as an Adventist? No, army captain and was converted while he was serving at Fort Walla Walla. Did Wagner grow up as an Adventist? He did, and in fact he was a doctor trained at Bellevue Medical School. These guys became buddies. And one of the most interesting things you'll find written by Wagner is the statement of his own testimony. A good part of it, well, it was referred to in your, um, in your reading. Wagner's own writing of it is fascinating. He says that he was in a camp meeting. There was a speaker speaking, but he doesn't remember who the speaker was. He doesn't ever remember th- thinking about what the speaker was saying when suddenly he had a revelation, and you can't tell when he writes it whether or not he saw a vision or whether or not it was just in his mind's eye, but it's probably towards the latter. And what he saw was Jesus hanging on the cross. What he understood was that Jesus had died for him. And it was an overwhelming experience, such that at that moment he made a decision that it looks like he did not turn back from for decades of his life. And that was to devote the rest of his life as much as he could to two things. Do you remember either one of them from your reading? What was one, Miss Johns? All right, so Wagner decided that when he was studying his Bible, he wasn't just going to be looking for whatever he could find. He was going to be looking for something in particular. He'd be looking for a revelation of the righteousness of Jesus in the Scripture. Looking for that. 
And what was the other thing you decided? He decided that he would spend his life trying to make it as plain to others as he could find it himself written there. In other words, he would study with a purpose, and that would be to teach. If I could give you any suggestion, it would be that you will learn more if you study with an intention to teach. I feel like sharing with you all the things that I'm reminded of because of that sermon I was just listening to to Mr. Fiedler, but I feel like a good chunk of you will probably... How many of you are likely to end up listening to that sermon? Can I see your hands? Okay, then I'm just going to not do it. Um, Wagner, when he began his study, one of the books he spent a lot of time in was Galatians. Is there any reason he would choose Galatians in particular? Galatians has a lot about the gospel. Galatians as a whole is a book written because people had a misunderstanding of the gospel. What's apparent in the book of Galatians is that they started out with a good understanding and then they degenerated to a worse understanding and then they received the letter from Paul to help correct their understanding. In that letter, Paul says, if anyone preaches any gospel to you other than that which we have taught, let him be accursed. And then he goes on to communicate that even if it was an angel that preaches to you another gospel, let the angel be accursed. So that there's only one gospel. In Galatians 3, speaking of the gospel, Paul says that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Does that make the law sound good or bad? It makes the law sound as good as an evangelist. Um, what does an evangelist do? Brings people to Christ. And here you have the law, and what does the law do? It brings people to Christ. Um, is that how you convert people? By bringing them to Christ? It is. And so the law of the Lord is perfect doing what? Yeah, exactly. There's nothing, you're not putting down the law when you say the law brings you to Christ. And what concerned Adventists was what said next. But after faith came, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So that, according to a number of Adventist evangelists in the 1870s and 80s, plays into the hands of antinomians, those who say that we're no longer under a law. Because faith came at the cross. Well, Wagner would say that that argument is bogus, and I would go with him. Did faith come at the cross? Listen, faith is in the Old Testament. Read Hebrews 11. We call it the faith chapter. And how many after the cross experiences does it talk about? Zero. All right. In order to give some generalities, I, you know, I don't mean faith ended at the cross, if that's what it sounded like I was communicating. But faith didn't come at the cross. When does faith come? Listen, faith comes in your experience at a certain point in your life. 
There's a time in your life before faith, and there's a time of your life when you have faith. A time. This is what. This is what, Paul. Paul. Paul meant, but this is what Wagner understood. So, what is the purpose of the law? You could say, like it says in, in the Bible, that the law is not for a righteous man, but the law is for, the lawless. And disobedient. What's the law do for the lawless and disobedient? It brings them to Christ. Let me just defend Wagner a little bit further and then go on with the history. The law brings people to Christ. The Bible says the law is for the lawless. If you'll think that through just for a moment, if the law is for the lawless, when is the law no longer for you? Isn't it very apparent? It's when you're keeping the law. Well, that's what it says in Galatians 2. It says that we, through the law, are dead to the law. In other words, it's by keeping the law that the law no longer condemns us. The law is no longer on your case when you are harmonizing with it. When it's written in your mind, it's not uh, condemning you. These things were clear to Wagner and he wrote about them and he published them in 1886 in the Signs of the Times. This was mentioned in your reading. Should he have done that? You know, he was right about his teaching. And you could get the idea from listening to some people speak that if you're right, it's always right to publicize. Do you understand what I'm communicating? You could get the idea that if you're right, it's always right to publicize. That isn't so. There is a premium to be put on harmonizing with your brethren. There is a value to presenting a united front to the enemy. And the fact that you're right is not a good enough reason to publish. If you want to find more on that, you can read the letters that Ellen White wrote to Wagner rebuking him for publishing his views. However, when Ellen White did rebuke him for publishing his views, she sent a copy of it to someone else. That was to George Butler. This might be very practical for you in terms of what to think when you're reading the testimonies. What to do when you read a testimony to someone else. Here Butler opened the testimony, written, addressed to Wagner, but sent to him also. And he read that Wagner should not have published his views. Butler thought, so he's wrong. Was that a fair conclusion? You might have come to it yourself if you had been him. We need to think deeper than we do sometimes. Deeper doesn't mean you have to be smarter. It just means you have to look at what it says, 
and realize what it doesn't say? Um, so Butler wrote a book that was basically a point-by-point refutation of what Wagner had published about the law in Galatians. Can you find, can you find the testimony that Ellen White sent to Wagner? Yes, you can. It's in the 1888 materials. Um, yeah. In fact, nearly every significant document connected to this topic is in those materials. I highly recommend reading them. They're fascinating. In fact, I brought a few pages of them right here that I expect to get to some of this and read it to you today. If I'm going to do that, I need to hurry up. So here I go. Jones and Wagner developed their ideas. I need to finish that story, don't I? So Ellen White wrote to Butler. and I said Butler. Yeah, it was to Butler and Uriah Smith. Wrote to them both and let them know that since they had published their views, that in all fairness, now Wagner must be allowed to publish his. So the name of Butler's book, the first little one, was... Um, the Law in Galatians, and it had a subtitle, something like, was it the moral law or was it that law that was particularly Jewish? Something like that. Wagner's book was called, did you all notice what it said? Just reading the title sounds better, doesn't it? And Wagner really was a very gifted man when it came to communication. In fact, you didn't have to read the book. Just look at the two titles and then you'd almost decide which one you liked better. Mm -hmm. so, so Wagner, because of some things Ellen White had written, ended up being invited to speak at the 1888 General Conference meeting in Minneapolis. Your book went into in pretty much detail the issue of Jones and the Alemanni and the Huns. I think I'll just leave that one. But if there was any goof that was made, I think your book highlights it. What was Jones's goof in that little interaction? Have you read this in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 8, 1? Knowledge, or verse 2, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. We have to watch it when we learn a lot of things. And at Washington Hills College, you learn a lot of things. It would be very easy for you when interacting with someone who hasn't learned as many things to treat their ignorance with disdain or maybe even with a down-looking pity when really it ought to humble you for the fact that it's not your fault that you know as much as you do. Does that make any sense to you what I just communicated? But coming to Wagner because his story is more relevant 
Wagner presented beautiful lessons and he profited from the mistake of his friend. Did he mention Galatians 3, the law of the schoolmaster in his lectures? Is that mentioned in your reading or not? Mm-hmm. He skirted the issue because he had a purpose in studying Galatians 3 and that was to reveal Jesus and the gospel. But is there plenty of Jesus gospel material outside of Galatians 3? There's plenty of it. And he was capable of presenting, of reaching his goal and presentations of lifting up his Savior without stepping on the minefield. And he did it. That kind of tact and wisdom is a winner. It it was exhibited, for example, by Martin Luther when when opposing fanatics in the 16th century. He preached six sermons. Everyone expected him to attack them point on point. He ignored them as if they weren't even there. And it defeated them. So, I think your book mentioned, I know it did, because tears came to my eyes when I read it. Things make me cry that don't make many people cry. About how Jones and Wagner responded together to, was it Mr. Morrison that tried to rebut them in a way? Say again? Yeah, exactly. They, I've seen the scriptures they read for that meeting. What they did is they sat down in the pew. One got up as if he was going to read the scripture reading for the sermon. He sat down, and everyone was expecting the next one to get up and give the presentation. But the next one got up and, and expected like, talked like there was another scripture reading. So everyone turns and they read that. Then he sat down. And they just went back and forth like that until they were done. And that was all. Remember, these are men that God chose to bring a special message to his people. Do you get an idea of where their power came from? The teachers of oratory and of argumentative skill will never teach you that method. To read to people? It had power. So there were a group of men who felt very intimidated. Now your lesson does go, does go into some important history too. When people came to that meeting, was everyone kind of in a neutral frame of mind to hear the two sides and make a decision? Anything but neutral. There were several things that had prevented neutrality, and one of them was a rumor, by the way. Uh, when the Bible says that receive not an accusation against an elder except in the presence of two or three witnesses, that very scripture would have prevented much of the difficulty in 1888. And if something had prevented enough of the difficulty, you might not have been born. What happened is way out in California, a man had been observing Ellen White and her son Willie White and Jones and Wagner, they were all together in about the same place. 
And he was of the opinion, of course, that Wagner was wrong in his opinions. This man began to see that Willie White was becoming good friends with these two renegades. And can you be good friends with two young men like that when they're doing what they're doing without buying into their ideas? At least it seemed to this man you couldn't. And of course, Willie White is very much in cahoots with his mother. By the way, at some point in your life, you're going to hear rumors that Willie White influenced Ellen White's writings. And if you want to read one of the most fascinating refutations of that argument, and at the same time learn so much about Adventist history, I recommend a book called Willie White and Ellen White by Jerry Moon. I have it in my house if you want to go sit down in that library and read at some point. It's his doctoral dissertation, and it's just on that topic. It's thick. You know, as a doctoral dissertation, he had plenty of time to research it. It's excellent. But anyway, going on. So uh, this, this man sent a letter forward to Battle Creek saying, watch out. These guys are coming to the General Conference and they have carried Willie White with them and intimating that Ellen White is being dragged into this. I tell you, that is not a well-thought-out idea if you believe that Ellen White is a prophet. If you can believe that Ellen White can be dragged into a false theological position today and be dragged into it to the point of presenting it, then what are you going to do with your Bible since you can't go back and find out which chapters of it were written under the influence of being dragged into a false theological position? Does that make any sense to you what I'm communicating? Let me try it again. In the Bible, you have the things written by Jeremiah. If a prophet can be influenced to write wrong things, and you don't know the history of what happened around each chapter... How do you know which chapters in Jeremiah can be trusted and which ones are defective? The answer is the Bible is pretty near worthless if you take that position. And of course it isn't so. I'll suggest to you that was one of the fundamental issues of 1888 was confidence in the testimonies. One of the fundamental issues and it always has been one of the issues ever since that time. So when Ellen White showed up, she wrote about it. How was she treated at the conference by her own testimony? It was terrible. She talked about old friends that gave her the cold shoulder. She talked about people who showed her no respect. It was the hardest experience of her life. And for... The rest of her life, when she would have another experience of people being closed to what she had to say that was particularly hard, often she would say something like, it was like the spirit of Minneapolis. Do you have any experience in your background, a memory that's kind of like that, that you use it like as a, a measuring base for other future negatives? That was it for Ellen White. It was like that experience. 
I'm going to get to this now, even though we're not to this point, because I'm afraid that if I keep going on like I am, I'll run out of time and won't get to it. One of the men who ended up going on the wrong side of this issue was Uriah Smith. Uriah Smith, who had been likely offended just before the meeting where this precious truth was presented. So was he likely in a frame of mind to hear it well? Watch it yourself, ladies and gentlemen, if someone gives you particular offense, make sure it's not a trick of the devil to unfit you for the very truth that you need. This is a letter that was written in 1889 to Brother Smith. Dear Brother Smith, last night I was awake at midnight with a heavy burden on my soul for you. I saw you walked upon a path that almost imperceptibly diverged from the right way. A noble personage stood beside me and said, Uriah Smith is not on the brink of a precipice, but he is in the path that will shortly bring him to the brink. And if he is not warned now, it will soon be too late. He can now retrace his steps. He is walking like a blind man into the prepared net of the enemy, but he feels no danger because light is becoming darkness to him and darkness light. His only hope is in being undeceived. If you want to read this letter yourself, it's on page 336 of the 1888 materials. I awoke and thought it must be daylight, but on lighting the match, looking at my watch, I saw it was only 12 o'clock. This morning I have read your article in review. Now there was no call whatever for you to write as you did. You place Elder Jones in a false position, just as Elder Morrison and Nicola and yourself and others placed him at, placed him at Minneapolis. The rest of that letter is missing. No one knows where it's at. This is just the next year after the conference, which was late in the year. Jones and Morrison and Nicola, you read about them all in your chapter. All of them began speaking about Jones in a way to make him look like a dangerous man, a bad man, and did they have experiences they could relate that made his character look bad? They did. But here was the other side of the coin. He was a courageous man, a studious man, fighting for the truth, trying to do his best to save us as a people. In fact, just before this experience, he was largely responsible for saving us from a national Sunday law. Joan was being used by God to communicate truths that we needed. And if God has a man he's using, you should watch that you don't watch that man for a mistake. Because God takes it as an offense to himself when you do. What was going on with Uriah Smith in the two paragraphs we have? The road he was taking, was it directly off the right path? It's, it's written like it it's so gently goes off that you don't perceive you're changing directions. However, it goes off and where does it come to? A cliff. And apparently, when you're walking towards a cliff, there is a state at which you can stop and you can turn around. But is there a point when it's too late to stop and turn around? 
and he was in danger. Did he perceive his danger? No. And so she said he needed to be undeceived. It was his only hope. This is a few months later, another letter. I say a few months. It's actually 17 months later. But it's the next year, 1890. From page 791. Dear Brother Smith, I've been remarkably exercised in regard to your case several times during my last round of labors. I have been greatly blessed of the Lord, but at times your case has been presented before me in a very clear light, just where you are standing. I have carried the burden with but little hope that I could do you any good. A gulf separates us. I look back and see how you gathered darkness to your soul in the time of the college difficulties. Have you come out clean in that matter? The Lord presented your case before me at that time, and did you believe and act on the light given? Had you fully accepted the testimony and heeded the warnings there given, you would not be where you are today. Have you and Brother Gage made clean work in confessing that you were wrong to Professor Bell? Have you not done this, the wrongs you committed against him? If you have not done this, the wrongs you committed against him are registered in the books of heaven. Can you afford to let this matter stand as it is, and you come up to the judgment with the actions that were performed against him in every particular to confront you? Professor Bell? That's not Jones or Wagner. Do you remember two chapters ago we talked about the development of the school there in Battle Creek? And was Uriah Smith one of the teachers there? Here he had had an experience at Minneapolis. And there he had taken a wrong position. Then he was in danger. And as he walked into the darkness, did it affect the way he related to other people? You know, it always does. This is the same letter, but a little further down. Elder Smith, the exercises of the past night prompt me to write. I know that you have been walking not in the light. You have had evidence and might have had a much larger array of evidence if you had had any room to receive it. Jesus, the precious Savior, has come again and again. He has sent you the very light you needed, but you did not place yourself in the channel where it could be communicated to you. You gathered about your soul the covering of unbelief till you cannot distinguish light from darkness and error from truth. Never, never will you change this order of things until you possess the humility of a little child. This will never be until you fall upon the rock and are broken. Self then dies, new habits are formed, strong inclinations and propensities are overcome, enemies within and without are ready to spring into life and overcome you. Without me, said Christ, you can do nothing. Do you decline the contest? Do you refuse to fall on the rock? If so, there is not the slightest assurance in your case that you will ever recover yourself out of the snare of the devil. Your attitude has encouraged a state of things in our churches which you have not measured. The result of your course and your working on the same line since you left Minneapolis has made the carrying out of the work given me of God to do fifty-fold harder than it need have been. You have barred my way, 
But oh, how little did you know the result of your work. This has been opened before me. When you stated that Sister White was influenced by Willie White, A.T. Jones, and E.J. Wagner, you have planted in hearts infidelity, and that has been nourished and has borne fruit. You will not be pleased to reap the harvest. Satan takes everything of this character and makes it a living active agent in destroying faith in the very work the Lord would have them to do. Every soul that fully takes your words and believes them are correctly represented by the words of Christ. I would that you were either cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Decided opposition would have done me less harm. Let's stop there for a minute. Uriah Smith, does this case sound dangerous? The mighty man who helped raise up our church, who helped develop our doctrines, who was a friend of Ellen White and defended her against opposition for years, who wrote some of the strongest defenses of her in our publications when she was attacked by detractors. This man, she's writing him as if his case is getting close to hopeless. What was the thing he did that made her work 50 times harder? He wrote, suggested that Ellen White's writings, her teachings, were influenced, this implies erroneously, by her son and Jones and Wagner. This is from page 800. Same letter. Why your particular case agonized my soul so continuously, I cannot define. Again and again have I seen that blindness was upon you to an alarming degree. I give you up to the hands of Jesus, and then think I have not more to say, not another word. Then I find my soul torn with anguish, and I am weeping and praying with strong crying and tears. Take not thy Holy Spirit from him. Oh, let something from thy spirit break the spell. Oh, that you would surrender your will to God's will. Oh, that you would tremble at his work. Where is your preparation to be obtained, that you may stand in the day of the Lord? Nowhere but low at the foot of the cross. Oh, it is not too late for wrongs to be righted. Do not confer with flesh and blood. Do not say there are some things I do not understand. Of course there are. Your mind is clouded. But take one step that you do see, and then you can see another. Oh, kindle your taper from the divine altar before it is everlastingly too late. Remove the stumbling blocks at once without any delay. When God helps you, you will be helped to see your own weakness and the inefficiency and the glory and majesty of Christ. What was going on in Ellen White's mind? Several times she thought, I've done all I can do. I'm going to surrender him to Jesus. In other words, my work for him is done. And what would happen? Again, she would be compelled to write him. Did Jesus love Uriah Smith? Did he win? 
when Uriah Smith eventually made his confessions, he did it in stages. Not incomplete and more complete, but to a few, then to more, then more general. He tried to undo the damage he had done. He worked for the rest of his life to undo the damage. His relationship with Ellen White was restored, but he could never undo the damage. Because if you read D.M. Canwright's book, Adventism Renounced, he has letters in there written to him by Uriah Smith when Uriah was in his darkest days. And Dudley never had a burden to explain that Uriah Smith repudiated those letters. They're there on record for all to read. We will develop at a later time the doctrines of 1888, the power that they have, how the world could have ended soon after, and what has been happening because of it. But if I could leave the lessons from this lecture, the primary ones, it would be the danger of rejecting light from God's messengers. How does Satan lead men to reject the light? He leads us to mock people for their character defects, to mock them for their immaturity in youth, to despise that. He leads us to cherish the things that seem dark to us and to refuse light because we can't understand some things. Anyway, Ellen White is not alive to send you a letter like she wrote to Uriah Smith. We have the letters she wrote to him. Maybe we ought to read them. We wouldn't want to go over the precipice. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you especially for finding a way to reach the heart of that very dark-souled man. For bringing him back from grave danger. And I ask a gift for those that are here that whatever trap the devil sets for our feet, that you would find someone or some way that would alert us to our diverging path. That you would put burdens on your servants, that we would have a chance to turn as did Uriah. I thank you for the gift as evidenced in his life and ask for it in ours. In the name of Jesus, amen.